We have, uh, because, because there are a number of new faces in here today, I just want to kind of orient you to what we're doing. For 2022, we have been talking about the theme of deconstructing our faith. That is, asking questions about our faith and what questions are we allowed to ask and how does all of that work? Because what we realize is that we have often been handed a faith tradition and either explicitly or sometimes implicitly we've been told sort of this is not acceptable to question this. You, you have to believe and your salvation is at stake or your, your soul is at stake if you ask questions. And so what we've been doing is we've been marching through 1 Corinthians for the entirety of this year and we've been basically just asking questions. And we've been doing deconstructive work and saying it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask why questions. It's okay to ask what questions. It's okay to stand before God in prayer and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't get this. And even, God, you kind of upset me. And to be perfectly vulnerable and honest. And so we have reached today 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this famous sort of love song or poem or ode to love that Paul writes. But here's where I want to start. Gerhard Kittel was the kind of thinker who only comes around about once in a century. His 10-volume set, called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, is considered still to this day, considered not only a classic, but a must-have for all students of biblical studies. Used in seminaries, quoted in books, Relied upon by preachers, Kittle's work has profoundly shaped 90 years of biblical scholarship and preaching. But Gerhard Kittle was a Nazi. In a speech he gave before a crowd of Christian academics, that is, Bible scholars and theologians in 1933 Germany, Kittle attempts to ease their anti-Semitic consciousness. He engages the question, did not Jesus and St. Paul demand that we love one another? Did they not demand even that we love our enemies? Kittle's lecture wrestles with the question, how do we love the Jews? He concluded that there are three kinds of anti-Semitism. This is what academics do. You gotta have three kinds of everything. The first was a harmless kind of uh, anti-Semitism. It was a kind of raceless that, uh, racism that happens in harmless jokes and around campfires and in workplaces. The second kind of anti-Semitism to Kittle was vulgar. It was the kind that felt anger. It was bombastic and ignorant. And it usually resulted in segregation of the one who was hated. But there was a third kind of anti-Semitism. One much more palatable, and Kittle would argue, loving. It was the anti-Semitism of cold, hard reason. See, it was understandable to Kittle. No, it was justifiable to Kittle. Because all Jews to him were historically a threat to whatever society that they had formed communities in. And so Kittle deemed this kind of anti-Semitism as logical, reasonable, 
And therefore, the most loving thing you can do for your neighbors is remove Jews from your community. God has called us to love everyone, Kittle argued. And to love the Jews means to let them know that we will not let them destroy our society. God has called everyone. And holy love of neighbor means that we cannot let our neighbors be threatened by the pernicious threat of the Jews. Gerhard Kittel was arguably one of the most influential theologians of a generation, and yet Gerhard Kittel was a Nazi who salved the conscience of other Nazis by explaining away their racism as love. Kittel and the Nazis spoke of love. They did not see themselves as filled with hate. They spoke of love. George Orwell's 1984 is the origins of this terminology often used called doublespeak, which refers to a kind of rhetorical linguistic manipulation. It is the use of positive terms in order to obscure negative meanings, particularly to obscure negative meanings that have political implications. Orwell said this, he said, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. In other words, what, what Orwell is doing as he is calling out the way we manipulate language in order to propagandize people or to get people to do what we want. It would be something like we would recognize when we refer to, say, collateral damage when what we really mean is civilians killed by <clears throat> our smart bombs. It would be what we refer to, or it would be an example would be when we refer to alternative facts, but what we really mean is par partisan spin. Or if I can get a little bit closer to home, it's when we say, bless you, and what we really mean is, that person's an idiot. Or if I can get even closer to home, it's what happens when we say, love the sinner and hate the sin, when what we really mean is, turn a blind eye to the further perpetuation of historical violence against queer people. In this last example, we are very much like Gerhard Kittel using the language of love while excusing and justifying centuries of violence. I am not sure that there is worse doublespeak than Christian doublespeak. As the saying goes, there is no love quite like Christian hate. Christian doublespeak shrouds hatred and violence in the language of love. This is one of the reasons why Paul has to write this ode to love in 1 Corinthians 13. Re remember, for those of you who have been here, and this will be a, a good thing for the, the rest of you to kind of get on board with, 
Paul is writing this letter to a group of largely wealthy, socially powerful people who were using the language of love in order to keep other people in the church, the poor in their church, under their thumb. To maintain the Roman social order of who has power and who doesn't. Their communion meals were called love feasts. And yet they were segregated along economic lines with the wealthy getting their own private room and better food. Paul literally dealt with this. We talked about last week. This is happening in Corinth. The language of love is being used, but social hierarchy and power is being reinforced. And here's the thing. They didn't see it as unloving. They had bought into the Roman doublespeak that said love, for you to love means that you're satisfied with your circumstance and you don't challenge the way things are because the way things are is by divine loving design. They had brought this mentality uncritically into the church. Like Kittle, they found ways to justify their social hierarchies with the language of love. So in these first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to spend three weeks in 1 Corinthians 13. In these first three verses, Paul addresses religious activity, particularly religious talk that is not accompanied by love. Religious activity that claims to be loving but is actually unloving. And as we read this, understand then that he's not just listing random things that come to mind. He is very intentional, naming specific places where the Corinthian church is struggling to in this sort of uh, calling things loving that aren't actually loving. And so this is what he says. If I could speak with the languages of earth and angels, there we go. Well, maybe the scripture isn't there. I'm just going to reread it. If I could speak with the languages of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had faith that could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I have gained nothing. Now listen, we have heard this so many times that, that, it, that it just it doesn't sit with us how profoundly he is reshaping the, their notion of love. They think that they have reached the heights of holy love because they can speak with the languages of angels. I don't even know what that means, but I have not reached that level of holiness. And Paul says, you think you can, you're holy and loving because you can speak the languages of angels, but you can do all of that and miss the point. Paul says their belief that they are spiritual because of their ability to do this is precisely what makes them unloving. You can speak the languages of angels, but if you don't have love, then you're nothing more than an off-key karaoke singer, he says. You can double speak it all you want, but you can't sing. Sing. 
They think they have reached the apex of divine revelation because they have received divine promises or prophecies, direct communication from God. But Paul says that love is superior even to divine revelation because love is the apex of divine revelation. You can receive direct prophecies from God, but if you don't have love, then you're just a cheap fortune teller. You can write a 10-volume set on the theological dictionary of the New Testament, but if you don't have love, you're just a nerd. They think because they have suffered for their beliefs that they have reached super spiritual status. Aren't these the people we ultimately look up to, people who suffer for what they believe? And Paul says people can suffer for what they believe for a lot of different reasons. People have been known to go to death for their own pride. Love doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it. And so Paul says, listen, if you're put on a pyre for your Christian convictions, but you don't have love, even for the ones killing you, then you're nothing more than a burning torch. We can double speak it all we want. We're not a Christian. To be genuinely Christ-like is to be a people of sincere, honest, tangible, active love. We are formed in a culture, including a church culture, that makes us fluent in computer languages, in foreign languages, in dead languages, but it does not make us fluent in the language of love. We are formed in a culture where sociologists can prophesy national fortunes, uh, uh, futures, and psychologists can understand all our secret motives and thoughts, but a culture that cannot teach us about the nature of self-giving triune love. We are formed in a culture that promises with enough faith, enough positive thinking. We can move mountains. We can get raises. We can heal diseases. We can win our spouses back. But not a culture that teaches us the empathy of love. We are, in, we are trained in a culture where the poor are uncomfortably ignored, occasionally helped, and often considered a threat, but not in a culture where the poor are loved as poor. And Paul says in all of this, what have we gained? You see, here's the thing. I think what Paul is getting at is that it is possible that the church is doing all the right things without the right reasons. We can speak the Jesus language fluently to win culture wars. We can speak the language fluently in order to appease our parents who drag us to church. We can speak the Jesus language to fit in with the Bible Belt culture, bless you. We can speak the Jesus language because we think that Jesus might help us get a raise. But where is our love? If 2,000 years of church and pastoral scandals have taught us anything, it is that some of the people who are most fluent in the Jesus language 
are often also the least loving. This is why I love John Wesley. John Wesley was not perfect. John Wesley was kind of weird sometimes. He was a bit messed up sometimes. Pretty sure, I don't know, this, this, this might be a myth, but I'm pretty sure I read at some point that like he had an ex-girlfriend or something come and receive communion. He was like, nope. <laughs> but I love John Wesley because despite his imperfections, I think he was picking up on what this whole thing is about. He said, whoever thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them so that it does not build up the double love of God and neighbor does not understand it at all. Not double speak, double love of God and neighbor. And at Bluff City, we add a third part of that, God, neighbor, and self. Love that. If we're going to talk about deconstruction, love is our motive for deconstructing the church's doublespeak. Our opportunity is to be a people of love who wield religious language truthfully and lovingly, saying what we mean and meaning what we say. We have an opportunity in a world of doublespeak, particularly church doublespeak, to refuse to do harm with our words or our religious language, not just in the southern fashion of refusing to appear to do harm. There are loads of churches, for example, that will use the doublespeak that says, for example, everyone is welcome here. But if you ever walk in as a person who doesn't fit into the nice, white, male, straight, middle or upper class norm, then you know you don't really belong there. Uh, If you're a woman who's felt a call to ministry in some of these churches, you know you don't belong there. If you're queer, you know you don't belong there. A few years ago, uh, when we were starting Bluff City, I met with a gay couple for lunch. They had attended the church. They wanted to get involved. And they said, we just want to make sure that us being gay is not a problem. Now, I have an opportunity in that moment to use doublespeak or to speak truthfully. So here's what I said. I said, I can tell you that as a straight pastor, there are a lot of things that I'm going to say that may come out of my privilege that I won't even realize. I can tell you that as a congregation made up largely of straight people, that there will be a lot of assumptions that assume heteronormativity. I can also tell you that I am actively working to be aware of my privilege and actively hoping to help my church be aware of our privilege. That said, A, I want you to know in light of that, we want you here. We believe you belong with us. 
and that's wonderful, but you're going to have to walk with us. But two, I don't want to mislead you. We are a part of a denomination that does not affirm you. And I am working against that. I am writing against that. I am laboring against that. And I am hoping to form my church into a people who are also raging against that. But I don't want to mislead you. Our denomination does not embrace you as you are. And you know what? They didn't come back. And you know what? They chose what was right for them. But I didn't want to lie to them. We have got to be a people who use our language truthfully. Where are we? Who are we? What are we about? What is this message that we're supposed to proclaim? It is ultimately that we believe that it is the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected that changes the world. Everything else is relative to that. But that means that people who are hurting and vulnerable are necessarily a part of this story. And we have to tell the truth about how we as the church have not always historically been the most welcoming people to people who don't fit the norm. We have to tell that truth. So this is not me saying, church, feel ashamed for any level of privilege. You and I cannot do anything about our privilege. It simply is. But what we can do is be aware of it. And examine it and critically reflect on it as a people of love. To love with my language means I don't even tell little lies. I said to a friend recently, I have an accountability, spiritual soul sharing time with another person who doesn't live here. We meet on Zoom about once a month. And I said to him recently, I said, I feel like sometimes we live in this mutual conspiracy to lie to each other. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Really? From little things to big things, we're uncomfortable just being ourselves. And listen, I'm not trying to offer like a, you know, like a, a childish sort of social analysis here. I understand how little lies like help us, but I'm just calling us to reflect on them. It is double-speak to tell people that they're safe when they're actually threatened. Another place we do this is with gifted folks. Have you ever noticed how, like, gifted people just seem to, like, get away with a lot more? The Corinthians excused a lot of their unloving attitudes because there were gifted people among them. This is why Paul addresses love on the heels of the misuse of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. We just talked about the misuse of spiritual gifts last week or two weeks ago. And giftedness becomes this excuse that Paul has to address for their unloving attitudes. They speak with angelic languages. They receive divine prophecy. Surely God is speaking to them. How could we ever question their motives? Clearly God is using them. And if you're paying attention, that kind of rationale is still at work today. Bill Hybels 
Bill Hybels, I guess he's been up there staring at you the whole time, I didn't realize. That's kind of creepy. Bill Hybels is one of the more famous American pastors in the last 40 years. Wrote a ton of church books on church leadership, influenced an entire generation of pastors. We have seminary professors here. You might have even uh, used some of his books in your classes. And within the last few years, Bill Hybels has been outed by multiple women as a predator. Took years. He's been doing it for decades. Took years and years and years for this to come out. And when these women were interviewed later and they asked, why not come out sooner? They said, we didn't want to hurt his ministry. He was doing such good things. Now here's the thing, let me be clear. I'm not criticizing those women. I'm criticizing a church culture that taught them and us that a person's giftedness excuses their toxic, traumatic behavior. No pastor that you will ever have in this church is too big or too gifted to be held accountable for their toxic behavior. That includes me. Now listen, if you don't like the shoes I'm wearing, that's a completely different story. But if what I'm doing is unloving, what if what I'm doing is unaffirming, if what I'm doing is anything less than love, What we just promised each other in baptism is that we will spur each other on to godliness and holy love. I blame a church culture that uses doublespeak to manipulate abused people into thinking that the most loving thing to do is submit to abuse for the good of the ministry. Even Paul says it doesn't matter how gifted he is. If his gifts aren't submitted to the power of love, then his ministry means nothing. So what makes a church or a pastor worth trusting is not their giftedness. It is not their programs. It is whether their giftedness and their programs submit to love. We do not love our church or our pastor or our parents or our teachers or a politician more than we love the God of self-giving love. St. John of the Cross said it this way, in the twilight of life, God will not judge us on our earthly possessions and human success, but rather on how much we have loved. And that begins by refusing double speak about love and speaking and loving with truthfulness and integrity. My friends, I want to invite our communion servers to this table at this time. If you're serving communion, would you come forward? Christ our Lord invites to this table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. 
We have not loved our neighbors and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord.